What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is Real Reality Realness with Brian K. James, the podcast where I, your host, Brian, interview figures in music, reality TV, and pop culture about their lives, their perspectives, and their platforms. Join me five days a week as I get to know some of my favorite people through their points of view and their journeys to their personal greatness. Lock in while I clock in, because we are about to get into it. Everybody. Howdy, I'm Dave Lennon, host of Groove and Gravity. What's going on, everybody? I'm Brian K. James, host of Real Reality Realness. We're here today to start off season one, episode one, Michael Jackson. You want me to start or do you want to start? I we'll let you dive in i just want to say thank you all for being here i'm excited yes, thank you so much we are here we have tiny animals in hand and mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we really did yes we we both literally have small animals in hand and we are you know just ready to get to the thing get, mm-hmm. get to the stuff um i believe today we are talking about the artist Michael getting into, you know, music and his albums, three of them albums, and we chose um, three albums to really speak about today mm-hmm. that really we felt like would give you a great um, host of conversation on not only him but his legacy, him as a person. There's a lot that goes into Michael's artistry, and we're excited to share it with you today. Yes, we are. And to start things off, let us begin with the album Thriller. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this was a pinnacle in uh, Michael's career. It truly was, if you think about it, because it was on the top of its charts, especially in 83, for (laughs) record-breaking like numbers. I mean, it was insane. I mean, even till today, the album is like the most selling ever. I think it's like 75 million or something crazy. And to be really honest, the story up until Thriller, you know, Michael had a career before Thriller even began. And it starts in 1979 when Michael released Off the Wall which in itself was a commercial success. It was not only a start to his career, it was also a start to his solo himself being an artist and being on his own. He felt unbruised and judged in many ways by the music industry. To think that you have 
you have, for example, like, you know, papers like um, in this case, it was like the Rolling Stone, which they literally denied a cover story for Michael. And I quote Michael saying, I've been told over and over that black people on the cover of magazines doesn't sell copies. Just wait. Someday those magazines are going to be begging for me and for an interview. Maybe I'll give them and maybe I won't. End quote. Brilliant. You know, it's crazy because we were at a time at that point where once again heavily segregated not legally anymore of course but with the culture and the society still being as racist as it was it still trickled down into the music industry it still trickled down into press and advertising you know michael jackson literally changed the way that black artists were presented in the media kind of with this album because without michael who knows how long it would have taken for black artists to be played on mtv thriller was the first music video by a black artist put on mtv and literally the record label had to threaten mtv and tell them listen if you don't put michael on we're not giving you another rest of our videos like y'all not getting a rock video y'all not getting these super videos y'all not getting whoever else they had signed at the time errol smith is just always the first group that comes to my mind but well, actually Aerosmith is very important to the story we're going to get to that in a little bit that's um, part yeah. of the reason why they're the first ones that come to my mind yes but but yeah so it's like it's crazy that even with him breaking ground it was by force it wasn't like oh they just recognized that the music was that great they just recognized that michael was such a great artist that they knew that that you know he was going to change history no they still were begrudgingly like no fuck you we're not letting you in the door and and boo stinky who like so what and so Sony was like, oh, no, we're not doing that. Or Epic or whoever it was. I can't remember who he was signed to first. Um, I believe it might have been Epic. But they, but his label at, at the time was like, listen, we're going to pull all of our rock acts if you don't put Michael out because this is the record. Well, and one thing, look one thing, well, one thing that he had, and here, here's the reality, though. The recording of Thriller was no easy feat, okay? You know, for starters, Michael had to reunite with producer Quincy Jones, which was amazing. I mean, he helped make Off the Wall, which was an apprenticeship project between Michael and, and, him, and him. And it was an incredible album. And then, you know, with this one, they worked on 30 songs for the album from the get-go. And with only nine making the cut. Who does that anyway? I know. Like, who I know. puts out albums with nine songs on them anymore? Who thinks their music is that good anymore? I'm just wondering. It's a great question. I don't think most people have a good answer for you, but... The only I person will... that's tried is Lady Gaga, and that was because she put out an EP, The Fame Monster, and then tacked on her first album onto it to make sure that it went with some remixes. So Gaga didn't even try to pull that shit. 
On the bright side, though, Thriller was recorded at Westlake Recording Studios. I did it. I did it. That was part. You did it, Joe. You did it, Joe. Thank you. In Los Angeles, of course, out of all places, when the recordings commenced in April of 82. Okay. Yeah. Um, with the recordings of The Girl Is Mine, which um, it was a collaboration with Paul McCartney, which began I, I that's kind of weird because I thought it was the other way around but anyway, it says that it was the last song that was mixed in November of 82 interesting, okay so it was uh, the first recorded in the last mix yeah See, they have had an interesting working relationship. They've had an interesting relationship the entire time they've known. I know. Clearly. Because I wonder why that is. I think I had a side note. Oh, okay. This is a fun thing. And I wanted your comment on this. Okay, so unlike many artists, Michael, he never wrote his music on paper. Okay. Uh, Instead, he would dictate it in a sound recorder, like a, you know, a tape recorder or something. And then when... Um, when recording, like actually like recording the song, he would like tune into the song from memory. So like, bruh, what? I, you know, for me, it's like all roads and music lead back mm. to Michael at some point. But I, but I say that for rap culture because a lot of rappers brag about. And this really started with Lil Wayne, I think. He was he was one of the people who really gained gained a lot of uh, prominence and like accolades for saying that he doesn't write his bars down anymore. He just freestyles them and just wraps them in the booth. Um, mm. That that started with an entire project where he did this song. I think it's called Ten Thousand Bars," where he went through his entire rap book and wrapped every single rap that he had written down on paper on one song and was just tearing the sheets out like all and so that was the last time that we got a song of him with written bars and then after that he just started doing bars off of the dome after that rappers left and right started saying i don't write shit down i just come in and do this i just come in and do that whether they do it or not sure great whatever but it also goes to show how influential or how far back certain writing styles go. Because right. I write my music like that. Not by like freestyling, like I'll write shit, but the way that I come up with my initial bars is through voice notes. So like when I go through music, I'll like listen to music. I'll, I'll um, come up with like, um, flows and harmonies and like melodies and like how I want it to sound and then I'll go back and listen to the voice notes and write down what I said and then make it better see the the thing is when we're when we're talking about the story of Thriller Mm -hmm. it's really wild because (laughs) we've talked about this this is hilarious it was um it was written as Starlight by uh, Rod Temperton. Mm-hmm. It was a little, little fun little me- melody. Uh, supposedly by the songwriter, realized that Michael had a love of horror, which he did. He had a love of horror and horror films and the whole culture. Mm-hmm. And from the song, 
he reconstructed reconstructed and it was given a more theatrical a more dramatic this arrangement that was kind of like a crossover between a broadway narrative and a dance floor beat um like kind of like punch you know you know like the you know what I'm talking about like that just like that punch yeah. and Rod envisioned a talking session at the end of Thriller um, originally but he didn't really know how to do it you know like we've talked about this like there are hip hop songs throughout the late 80s and early 90s where it has rap and hip hop and they kind of mesh and mold with each other and make great songs like, they're kind of fun they're a little funky um, it's hard to do, you know? And I mean, for somebody that like has no idea what he's doing. So he inevitably turns to Quincy's wife out of all people because Peggy, which is uh, Quincy's wife, she knew the legendary Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so this idea for, so the idea was for him to talk like this horror, like thing he did like on his films he did way back in the day so they might do like right before this like literally right before the sessions quincy called and says i'm a bit scared he said perhaps you better you know write something else for him you know because i mean like this is kind of like bananas you know you have this like i mean i kind of understand this i mean like you're making this song and There was a moment there. Um, <laughs> um, you know, you're writing this song and he sees this opportunity. He sees this really great opportunity to bring somebody in that can kind of bring that horror thriller, you know, the name of the song. Literal. Yeah, mm-hmm. literally. So, in short, the amount of time. <laughs> Rod um, actually wrote the ghoulish uh, rap that, like the the um, the rap or the the last piece, the spoken verse, the end of the song. Uh, da, 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 I lost my place. See, this is what happened. Oh god, this is what happens when you have blue light, and I'm just like, I can't fucking see shit, honey. I encourage this. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 I encourage the blue light. Blue Walt waiting. So good. Oh, okay, so. He concocted the whole like ghoulish uh, thing at the end while waiting for a taxi to go to the studio. Okay. And two more verses during the ride. So while he was waiting for the taxi and while he was in the taxi, it was such a, a, a click at that, like literally just a snap. Like he's like, okay, let's do it. That all just feels so kismet to me. Oh my god! You know, if anything, Michael incorporated cinema, specifically horror, especially in the thriller era. But Michael was really always inspired by cinema, by film, classic musicals, and through thriller, the horror genre. And I love the ways that he incorporated. Easter eggs or directly paid tribute to classic films throughout his um, career. And the first piece of that being Vincent Price. The fact that Quincy Jones's wife just happened to know him. I know. Like, what country club were they a part of? 
What I want to know. Party were they at? Can we go get invitations, please? Because like I'm, I don't really have plans Saturday night. I would love to know what charcuterie board they were picking off of when oh they my were God, talking yes. about bits and praise. And you know, hey, listen, sugar, can you do me a favor and just come on down to Quincy's studio and just do a little one two down oh, to oh, his oh, uh, two C. Do a little, little Watusi. Watusi. Yeah, girl. Do a little Watusi down to the record lane. Down to the record. Down mm-hmm. to the recording studio real quick so we can lay this down real quick. Because, you know, his little new artist, Michael from the Jackson 5. Yeah, he's going so long. But he want to do a little horror two bit. You know what I'm saying? So come down and lay a little, you know, lay a few bars on him real quick for him, sugar. You know, like mm-hmm. I can just imagine. What were they picking off of? What was she drinking? What type of champagne were they drinking? I would love to know what that type of ambiance was like. What was that phone call? I don't know. But I will tell you this. Shout out to Peggy. I know, really shout out to Peggy. You kind of, the energy on this album for Michael was very focused. He knew what he wanted. Um, Guitarist uh, Luke Hather recalls him as entuned as if he was getting ready for the groove of the most wonderful dance. It wasn't where he was, you know, moonwalking or he was bopping around and having a good time. We all could feel the energy and we wanted to be a part of it. Look, Ather said he and Quincy were also popping. So Michael be bopping around the stage, bopping with Michael. I love, I love that behind the scenes, but like every piece of behind the scenes footage that I've seen of Michael dancing is always just magnetizing to me. Cause it lit like when you say the word bopping, it's literal bop. Like like you could, like he could be dancing to no music, and, and like you can just hear a like you could like you feel uh, like he just feels like like watching Michael dance just feels like music at all times so like the Thriller Sessions would eventually prove to be the album's like central track being that Billie Jean was on was one of the four songs that Michael contributed to the album well Quincy felt that the intro was instrumental and was too long and he said to Michael, you know, you could sh- shave on that intro. You know, you could have uh, it a little, a little smaller. And Michael's response was <laughs> silly. No, <laughs> no. Why? I love, but I love that though. Cause like. I love that instrumental. It was beautiful. Yes. And we're coming off of like. Now, mind you, I get why Quincy tried to do that because it, the example that I'm about to give you is kind of a violent ending for it. They tried to kill off disco. Like, like disco was one of the only genres that kind of went out of fashion really violent. Like, people really were like, fuck disco. Like, you were not cool if you fuck with disco after 1978. Like, it was a rap for you. And so Michael coming in with these extended 12-inch fucking 17-minute songs with intros with no lyrics on them for three minutes at a time and then just random. Ah, Like, girl, what? Like, what? Who? But then you got to think about it. I can't do it. I can't do the the Michael. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, I'm not even going to try that. No, I'm not going to try either. I've already embarrassed myself uh, enough already. 
listen, I, I smoke cigarettes. I ain't gonna be able to do it if I'm no. somebody else. No. But, but no, like, if you think about it, Michael Jackson's music, especially his early music, could have been the score for any for a Broadway play. The way that he constructed music, the way that he thought about the progression of music, the way that it carried his music. Like I'm surprised. Like I'm not surprised that his music hasn't gone to Broadway. Or I, I'm not surprised that his music has gone to Broadway and been put into productions and all of those type 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 of stuff. MJ the musical. I think they've even done and uh, done a show in Cirque du Soleil with exclusively Michael Jackson music. Like, oh. it's perfect for live performance. It is. It's perfect for live performance. So, speaking of, um, drummer, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Nadgu Chancellor. He was okay. brought into the album Thriller to give it extra kick. They're already a massive beat. I mean, you know, Thriller was already like so ahead of its time. It's very 80s, but it was very ahead of its time. And there was originally a drum machine track on it. And when Chancellor arrived, he cut a live drum track over the drum machine track to add another layer of, quote, air candy. Fun fact. Tom Scott, uh, Tom Scott uh, plays an uncredited solo on the obscure horn called uh, lyric on that is woven throughout the song. So it's kind of hilarious how there's like famous people and even more famous people that are like in these songs. Some of them you don't even know who they are, you know, like we'll learn. Um, but I kind of love that too. Like it's not just like there wasn't just a drum machine there was actual drums like there was they actually brought somebody on to play drums damn i you know it makes me wonder like this was early 80s were beat machines even a thing were drum machines even a thing at this time and like how prominent were they well okay so you have to keep in mind and we're gonna go for a little bit track uh, drum machines have been around since the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Electric drum machines have been around since the late 60s. Um, the actual like boards of drum machines started popping around the mid-70s. And such bands that use them, which you, I don't know if you've heard of Suicide. Mm-hmm. They're insane, man. Like, insane. But they were one of those that used one of those types of drum machines. The drum machines were around already for quite some time when Thriller was being yeah. made. Yeah, like my question wasn't necessarily did they exist. It was more so like were they like consistently used in like regular music? Like I like from my oh, yeah. from my Big thought time. process, I thought that they were more so like substitutions for live instrumentation. No, no they were actually used. They were using a lot of music throughout the late seventies and early eighties. But the thing about Michael and a lot of artists at the time, such as David Bowie, mm-hmm. was they were they were bringing in like live instruments. Um, you know, kind of going into um, another song when it comes to, like, for example, the lyrics of, of Billy Jean, as quoted from the Rolling Stone article, Billy Jean told a chilling tale of being falsely accused and living in terror. A caution to be careful of what you do, because a lie becomes a truth. This side of Michael had. 
hadn't been really seen up until this point. The Wonder Boy was gone, replaced by a man with real thought and emotions. And this raw feeling that was a new dawn for Michael. He knew what he wanted, and he knew how to do it. There were claims, according to Gary Hershey uh, from Rolling Stone, he was uh, a journalist at the time, um, seeing a photograph poking out of Michael's um, hanging picture. He had a picture that was hanging up in his um, in his uh, uh, dining room, and it was of this black teenager of average sense. I don't even know what that means, uh, posing most likely for a high school yearbook. Okay. So Jackson, so Jackson acknowledged that this was a picture of the real Billie Jean. And Michael further explains that she had written him claiming that he had fathered and her twin children. Get this. Okay. According to Quincy years later. All right. There was a woman who was thrown out of Westgate, claiming the story of Michael being her father, like the father for the twins that she of her kids. Right. Damn, Michael, honey, what, what you do? What you doing after late hours? <laughs> you know, Billy Jean is that. such a funny song to me because it is. I think that Billy Jean was the first time that people really realized Michael Jackson was grown for real. Like listening to Billy Jean, this is back in the time when you believed like people was writing their real life out here. Oh, he talking about what he going through. This is Michael Jackson's life. This is what he's living. This is his story that he's putting in his music. So you like, I think this is the first time people really realized that Michael Jackson was out here fucking like he real grown out here. Like 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 he's having relationships. He ain't no little boy no more. He ain't to do with it's the big nose and the acne no more. Like like. Y'all can't blame it on the boogie no more. Like, no, he's mm. out here getting his... Like, he's out here not not stopping until he get enough. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> and I think Billie Jean really cemented that for people. But I think what makes the song even more funny for me, it's really not only like, like, like a groupie story, but also it's one of those situations that it's really Michael telling... A real ghetto ass story in a really beautifully poetically put way. Like he really made some really beautiful music out of a real ghetto ass story. Like how many times do we hear about uh rappers and ball players being like, oh, this groupie came up and was like, yo, you got me pregnant. We had a one night stand, you my baby daddy. Ah ah ah, where's my child support? Run me my Billy King is not my love. Oh my god, I love that it's song. Very that it's the same that Billy Jean is it's very not bad. My like love. Girl, this random chick I slept with. Now she's trying to say I gave her a baby. I did not go half on nobody's baby. I'm sorry, you was not getting the Jackson coin, no ma'am. Mm-mm. That's really what it is. But it's a really beautiful way to say it. It is in the middle of production. There was this belief throughout the entire staff and crew that the album was finished. And there was already a lot of hours and work that was put in. So to everyone's surprise, Quincy Jones just says to everyone, it's not over yet. With Michael responding with a distraught, what are we going to do now? So Quincy felt there was certain elements that there was missing still. In short, he went back to the drawing board to find it okay there were bands 
that were sent in to do demo tapes for ideas. And this is this is kind of interesting. Okay. Uh, one of them, for example, being Toto, and they sent over two demos. And to Quincy, he felt they were okay. I mean, I love Toto, but I, I can understand. <laughs> he felt he felt that the tapes were running at this end. It was just silence. Like there was this false lyric, like very skeletal. But there was like this kind of wonderful flavor. 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 Quincy, after hearing these demos, sent it over to um, John Battis. I don't know who that is. I, I tried searching. Do you know who John Battis is? No. John Battis? Battis or Bettis. I think Bettis. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't matter. Anyway, some random, some random person, a part of this random story, who responded back with a lyric titled Human Nature. As the song developed, uh, Luke Ather, like we spoke before, which was the guitarist on Thriller, added all of these weird, metered, hooky parts, whatever that means, earning and arranging credit. Michael's performance of the songs was breathy, lighter than air, resulting on one of Thriller's most memorable pop, like pure pop moments. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because like. Here's two key elements. One is Quincy Jones being Quincy Jones, like being such a perfectionist, he goes back to the drawing board. That's number one. Number two, you have bands like Aerosmith and Toto that are sending in demo tapes. This is the crazy part that people don't understand. A lot of bands at this time in the 80s that were like rock bands, they were dying. Yeah. They were drugged out. Um, their, their their careers were over. I mean, you know, you take Aerosmith. By the time the '90s reached, but they they had that you know that thing that happened in the mid '90s, and they had their whole thing, and they came back. But a lot of them were desperate and the really crazy crazy thing about thriller was it was not only just michael's next album no 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 it's more than that it is a tribute album it's like bring in it's like everybody like just shake off the moss let's get out of the closet come on we can <laughs> all do this and that's what it was absolutely i just looked up john bettis yes i see why they wanted him as a lyricist, he's a really heavily decorated lyricist. Um, he's in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Um, he was nominated for an Academy Award for the song Promise Me You'll Remember from The Godfather. I'm not oh, exactly yeah, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know who that is. Article. Yeah. Um, Amazing. He wrote, um, he did music for um, he wrote the song Top of the World which ended up being a hit for Lynn Anderson and the Carpenters um, he's uh, he later wrote for artists including Madonna Crazy for You Michael Jackson Human Nature yes which is what we're, t- we're talking about right now there it is I hmm hmm mm mm He's still alive, by the way. He's 76. Um, Shout out to John Bettis, because human nature is definitely top 
three, if not top five on my list of favorite Michael songs. Bless it, you. It's um, it, just like um, just like what we're hearing over here. It has it has this really beautiful um, connection and vibe and feeling. It does. It hooks you. It does. It, it kind of like hooks you in. You kind of like move your head and you're like, oh, and you just there's there are there are amazing Michael songs, but there are a few Michael songs that will do that. Yeah, I that think way. With this record specifically. Yeah. The instrumentation of it, it opens up with just instrumentation and the wave and the feel of it. It's really hypnotic and it's soothing and it's melodic and it really just kind of like relaxes you. And then his voice and the lyrics just kind of blend into it. There's no grand entrance. There's no, no. big note to open you. No. He just flows right into the music uh, and keeps I, it going. I have it so on vinyl it. and you've heard it. If you mm-hmm. if you look at the vinyl record and when it moves from track to track, there there is no it's just next song, next song, next I love and, that. And if you this is the crazy thing and this is the magic about Quincy Jones is they meld into each other in beautiful harmony which means okay I know old tech okay he went into the studio he physically redid the tapes the actual physical tapes that was in there retune them refine them So that the entire two sides can synchronize. I'm just like real engineering. It's amazing. That's real music. That's real music. Real, people don't put that much focus no. and effort into mm-hmm. it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like you don't put the, but it's also, you know, shout out to the advancement of technology. Sure, yes, that's great. But with the advancement of technology, people could be doing that and so much more with music. Do you get what I mean? So it almost makes me a little bit more upset because it's like, sure, you don't have the old ways of going in and really, you know, restructuring the tapes, but you could be doing that with clicks of buttons and you're not. So another song that came from Red, um, from Ron Temperton, which he's a very important part of the story of Thriller because he wrote and helped coordinate and illustrate a lot of songs that we love, like, for example, Thriller that we just spoke about. Um, one example would be The Lady in My Life, which is kind of like a classic Sinatra-style ballad. This would be the closure for the album, providing, you know, the final grace, you know, not like PYT, which is pretty young thing. Um, actually named after the brand of lingerie Quincy's wife, again, liked and... That's had, a real one. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, alongside alongside the um, sorry on on Thriller though, it was the closest thing to an R and B contemporary. Okay, you know, with Michael's flirty vocals and the way he was chirping and the synthesizers and the over cheesy eighty lines and slogans like to the max, you know, and and tenderoni, you know, and it was just another groove. You know, said Qu- Quincy was 
I've been playing those kind of grooves since I was with Ray Charles. There's only one person that can be like, yeah, you know, back in the day was when I was with Ray in. Charles. Yeah, we were just drinking whiskey in a bar, like. At least what he was saying at this point was complimentary, because you know the way Quince, the way Quincy Jones give it up now, child. He'll air all your business out, child, if you get him on the right day. I'm just glad he said something positive about Ray Charles. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, mercy. But there was still one final card left to play. Michael wrote, I'd been thinking, I wanted to write the type of rock song that would go out and buy. So Quincy wrote back in 84 that we were very conscientious of wanting a, you know, a a white rock and roll groove. After Michael wrote, beat it, Quincy said we knew he came up with a nitroglycerin. Later, the producer would say that he felt the album had needed a song like My Sharona, a black version of a very strong rock and roll thing. Hmm. It was like its companion song to Billie Jean, evidence of the growth in Michael's songwritings, the words expressing violence that is not simple nor preachy. The rhythm or groove has realistic and subtle, subtle rock flavor. It guides the rhythm section when Michael pounds on boxes in the studio, giving the extra touch. Quincy had the idea to bring on a guitarist, Eddie Van Halen. He did help Michael, and they were friendly and with Eddie. But yeah, I mean, I think that's it. You know, it's it's there's more. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry. There's more. No, you're fine. Yeah, but like I think this is um a great thing because. You know, at the time it was true, like rock and roll was a very white thing. I mean, the only I mean, there were plenty of, of black rock and roll artists. I mean, Jimi Hendrix, I could think of one of them. Um, there were many, but there weren't as many that were as powerful. And the thing about Michael, like we're learning over here is like he, he wasn't sold on one genre. Like he wanted to mesh his style with other genres and see what he could make and what he could create. Yeah, and I think the only other person who was giving anything worth looking at as far as people of color in rock was Prince at the time. Like, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix is the GOAT, you know what I mean? Um, There are so many others, but like, you know, there's, there's rumor and legend that, you know, Michael had an asphyxiation for Prince. There was a there was a, a frenemy love hate there, and some people say there was inspiration. Some call it jealousy. Some say inspiration. Um, but you know, it it, it it it. I appreciate the fact that 
he wanted to not just settle in one genre and go for as much diversity as possible because I think that that's the reason why his music became as successful as it became because it was able to spread as wide as it could possibly go. I think that he created music that not only transcended genre, but it transcended color. It, a, a little bit of advice, anyone that is managed to get up to this point which congratulations to you okay mm-hmm. shout out to you um if you really want to be a a successful artist you have to learn to collaborate because you know what um if you mind i continue um Go for it. when eddie um which is from van halen of course uh, when he came to uh, Westgate to record um, his solo for Beat It, Quincy told him, I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you w- what to play. The reason you're here is because of what you, what you know how to play. I mean, also, Luke Ather was uh, working on Beat It. Um, and after he was after hearing the recording from Eddie, who was also working on the song as well. So they were both working at the same time. He wanted to spice things up. So Luke Ather now gets inspired by Eddie. Um, And he said that that when he told me Eddie was playing on it and they were trying to do a crossover record, I whipped out the Marshalls and did a wall off fucking sand. And Quincy's response was he felt the guitars are too heavy. They'll never play this on an R&B radio. The sound of Beat It was out there, wild, raw, and so out of the box rock and R&B. And this time for Eddie, who was on the top of his game, he was a perfect fit for Beat It. He didn't feel like a guitar solo over an R&B track. It was very organic. The idea was unusual, but the results speak for itself. The overdubs for Beat It were the last parts recorded for Thriller. The team worked until 9 a.m. Bruce Sweden took the tapes to be mastered. And the other side, Quincy took Michael back to his house. It gets exciting. He put him on the couch. He pulled a blanket over him. Quincy went on and said, when, when do we have to go back at noon so we can be able to listen to the masters? And at this point in the game, the album thriller didn't have the punch they were hoping for. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> How much more do you need? It was it was too long to fit on a standard LP. To make it fit, they had to cut a verse from The Lady in My Life and shorten the intro for Billy Jean. Which, by the way, I mean, like you, you still get the instrumental. I mean, you don't get the full, but it's still pretty long. I mean, it's like, I think it's like 36 seconds i believe it's it is quite long it is it It is is. um but as the time passed they opted to remix jesus fuck me in the ass remix the entire album except for girl is mine which is the mccartney song collaboration which was all over radio at the time and one it was one track a day for the for the eight days so basically it was already out 
over a week by the time they were making all these changes again 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 which is crazy to me it's like the album is already out and you're making changes to it it's like y'all were pressing physical copies of this how is this happening i I don't know like i I don't know like for the people who are listening who are born after the year 1995 y'all don't get this because y'all are so used to people being able to go when on to their computers and just change their songs and just hit a refresh page on the distributors and be able to update their album like that now like y'all probably don't even know what a cd is now like to think like let alone a damn cassette tape vinyl i know wow the final day of mixing was on monday november 8th 1982 22 22 days later, Thriller was available in stores, with Michael being 24 at the time. Gary Hershey, again uh, from Rolling Stone, made um, made a claim in 1985, quote, Michael had predicted it all when I first met him. The media... The staggering sales, the figures, and the orders of thing, the orders, the orders of singles, sorry, and the fact that Billy Jean, surprise, would be the breakout song. Um, it's just incredible because, like, he predicted it. He says, "I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make the bet." I mean, you know, it was Michael. Well, I mean, if you can't bet on yourself, who else are you going to bet on? I think at the end of the day, he knew. He knew what it was. I think he knew the music that he was making and he knew the the direction that he wanted to go. I think that that's really what um, makes Michael's earliest record stand out for me is because these were the years that Michael was truly trying to change music. He wasn't trying to adapt. He wasn't trying to reinvent. He wasn't trying to do what everybody else was doing. He was trying to take the elements that he had and create masterpieces. Like, this is back when people were trying, like, like who else, like, like what artist today is out here trying to create the greatest album of all time every time they walk in the studio? All three albums that we're talking about today are Michael's goals. Like, he was like, I have to make the greatest album of all time. Well, guess what? I just did that. Now I got to make, now I got to top my damn toes. Like, and I think that's what really sticks out to me about Thriller and Bad specifically. Like, he was really trying to change music and really trying to do something different. And then it gets a little different when when we get to Dangerous, but we'll talk about that later. Yes, and with that, um, we're going to take a short break uh, when we come back, which is going to be part two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be talking about bad. So, uh, be right back. Thank you. 
What's going on, everybody? Brian K. James here, and I'm so excited to let you know that this podcast is being brought to you in part by Outlander Media Network. Outlander's mission is to bring you the most exclusive alternative content from across the web, from the farthest reaches invading your space. We appreciate every single one of you guys for tuning in and never want you to forget to embrace your inner Outlander. I am Brian K. James, and this is Real Reality Realness.